Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. With this earnings season coming to a conclusion, what to expect next for stocks? Typically, stocks rally into and during the earnings season, depending, of course, on the results of specific companies. Here to tell us about earnings and market valuations is Matt Forrester. He's the chief investment officer for BNY Mellon Lockwood Advisors. He helps to oversee nearly $8 billion. He's based in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Matt, thanks very much for being with me. Good to uh, be here. You know, one of the, uh, one of the things that, that always sort of is interesting is if you take a look at a chart of the S&P 500, let's just use that as a, as a proxy, you can kind of tell when earnings season takes place without even knowing what the dates are, what the calendar is on the bottom of the, of the chart. Because it seems that we have this pattern that has almost been ingrained in investor behavior. Have you noticed this as well? Oh, absolutely. Since, uh, since 2012, 80% uh, of the stock market gains have occurred during this earnings season, and this one has been absolutely spectacular, uh, of course, driven by the tax cuts. But we've had a remarkable earnings season, um, and we've also seen analysts begin to pick up their expectations for future quarters going into the next uh, you know, rest of 2018 and into 2019. So uh, we've clearly had some, some really remarkable corporate results. Uh, interestingly, the markets have not always, uh, in every individual case, there's certain cases where they have looked at these earnings and then looked at the guidance and looked deeper. So I think uh, it's fair to say that a lot of the good earnings number have been widely anticipated. Um, but we've continued to have gains in markets, and we've sort of powered through this other levels of risks uh, that we've seen over the markets over the last few uh, few months. All right, we'll get to the risks in, in a second. But this notion that we see these gains, as you said, 80% of the gains seem to come in this in, in this specific time period. If you're an investor and you're looking for a time to get in, do you wait until the earnings season is over? see what people are doing in terms of maybe taking some short-term profits, and then go and prospect for the stocks, the companies that you really want to own. Yeah, it could be. I suspect that we're going to have a summer where some of the issues that have recently cropped up uh, and some of the risks are probably going to give us these periodic buying opportunities. So if you're looking to make large new allocations to perhaps the equity market, you may want to see how that affects the overall macro picture. So um, clearly we've had the Italian news, which, uh, you know, had some... Uh, but this stuff just like it lasts like for just a day, right? That's right. But it gives you those buying opportunities right. that are very short-lived. I think those are very hard for, uh, for market players to adjust to. Um, but if you look at those lists, we had a scare in February on average hourly earnings. Uh, you know, it's somewhat crazy for markets to respond to a three-tenths of an of a, a increase uh, from expected number in average hourly earnings. But it got the markets worried about the things that we might see in inflation. Whether the Fed was behind the curve, you know, raised questions about whether or not monetary policy was half to get even tighter, uh, you know, more quickly than what the markets have expected. And when we see those types of fears work their way through the markets, um, that's going to give us those periodic trade opportunities. So the calendar, you know, from here to the midterms is going to be filled with 
these trade issues, which were going to be ongoing. Uh, we're going to be continually dealing with some of the European populism and what's, what's arisen from the Italian crisis. Uh, on the backdrop of that, though, is going to be a lot of really good earnings numbers, you know, coming from, from American corporations. So we're hoping that that is going to power us through these isolated events. Um, but there are real structural reasons why investors should be somewhat concerned about Italy, the third largest bond issuer uh, on the planet, uh, eighth largest economy around the world, 12th largest by purchasing power parity concept. Uh, you know, if there are challenges to European populism, uh, those things are going to have an effect on, on the Eurozone. Um, we're going to have to power through these trade issues. The, the structural um, connections between the U.S. and China are really big. This is a really big deal. Uh, are, you know, we have more connections than any set of geopolitical uh, or business rivals uh, maybe in the 20th century. So we need to work through this. I think the structure probably means that we will tread carefully. But in so many of these things, markets are dealing with issues that are largely opaque. They may not be able to have visibility. We don't know as market players what the Italian government, new populist Italian government really wants to do. I don't think the, the new Italian <laughs> government necessarily <laughs> wants, wants to know. I, I, right. be, be, I, we've got a, we're limited in time, and I want to give you about 30 seconds here. To, what are you specifically focused on in terms of where you're putting money to work right now? So I think because of these uh, successes, series of risks, you have to think about your portfolio as an overall whole. You should have some pieces of your portfolio that may act as ballast, uh, you know, to help help keep the ship afloat when these periodic risk uh, events continue to hit us. And uh, for me, that means gold. It means some amount of exposure to uh, long-term high-grade debt. We can't do this in all of our portfolios, but where we can, we try to isolate uh, some places where we can have some pieces of ballast. Uh, U.S. small caps may be less uh, exposed to some of the events going on overseas. For all those things, those kinds of things that we're trying to put into some portfolios today. Thank you very much for being with me. Uh, Matt Forrester, Chief Investment Officer, BNY Mellon, Lockwood Advisors, helping to manage nearly $8 billion of customer assets. He says, look at gold, high-grade corporate debt, and small cap stocks. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I want to bring in Dr. David Kelly. He really knows how to crystallize. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You have to tell people you were hosting an amazing panel at, yeah. the, at the BNY Mellon Insight 2018. And Dr. David Kelly was on it, and okay. he always does a wonderful job at crystallizing and sort of distilling complicated economic issues into wonderful metaphors that actually ring home. Uh, he is Chief Global Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and one thing that you said that really struck me was that you think that investors are being too bearish in the short term and too bullish in the long term. Can you explain? Yeah, I, I, think, I think in terms of the short term, uh, we are seeing a real pickup in economic activity and we've, uh, I think economic growth in the second quarter could be as much as 4%. We've got the lowest unemployment rate since 1969. Earnings this year are going to be up about 26% year over year. These are, these are really wonderful numbers. And, when you think about the stock market, I would invest in stocks today just because of the money companies are earning right now. Never mind about the future, because right now they're, they're generating an awful lot of cash that can be paid out in dividends, that can be used for stock buybacks. That's, that's all positive. 
I think in the long run, though, we have to recognize that, that you know, we, we, there's a lot of talk to these days about 3% growth. I think we can do 3% growth for about a year. But because we don't have any growth in the number of, of or, or virtually no growth in the population age 16 to 64, we're really out of available workers. And so, you know, I think the unemployment rate can come down a little bit more, but then it's going to stop and growth has got to slow down to about 2%. And I think, you know, for the long run, we need to recognize that that's where we are. Unless we change our policies with regard to immigration and legal immigration to increase the number of skilled workers in the United States, uh, we will slow down. Uh, but there's also a lot of opportunity overseas. And so I think that in the short run, people are being um, a little too pessimistic and not giving the market credit for the earnings that companies are earning right now. But in the long run, I think we're, we're not recognizing the real structural problems the U.S. economy has, not just around this labor supply thing, but also around uh, very big budget deficits which are growing. If you want to find out about the health of the U.S. consumer, where do you go? I, I go to Costco. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful place. You, you, I mean, you, you see these mobs of people. I mean, they're piled back into the aisles. And then you look at their, their carts. I mean, they have to push these big oversized carts. And then know they pile well. everything up to a peak. But what, what you really should do is look in the carts. Because yes. people are buying enough mustard for a generation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why? Because they've got the money. And, and so if you want to see mindless consumerism, Come to Costco. Okay, there, I, no, but I asked. I asked this for a, a reason because I want to get to the point that it is one thing to sit in front of a screen and watch a number; it is another thing to go out into the real economy and the real world and find out what is new, what is innovative, what people are spending their money on, what they're not spending mm -hmm. their money on. And I'm wondering whether this is something that you, in a sense, advocate combined with all of your. Uh, higher level work. Uh, absolutely, because you, you look at ma big numbers, and I don't believe in, in modeling ba based on anecdotes, but you can use anecdotal information to really get the, what's going on. I mean, you try and find a plumber in America today. Uh, you can't find one. I mean, you just, you know, if you've got a problem right now, they're not going to come out today. Maybe you wait, wait a week, maybe you wait two weeks. Uh, but the, but the, the problem is where there's a real shortage of skilled workers. And you can see that in your day-to-day -day life if you actually try and hire somebody to do a particular job. Um, and equally, you know, if, if you want to see what's going on with consumer spending, as I say, you can, uh, there are plenty of areas where you can see just how mindlessly people spend whatever money is in their pockets. You know, but just to push back, if you look at it from the other point of view, if you want to just look at anecdotal evidence, there's still a lot of, I don't know, pessimism out there among a lot of people. I mean, perhaps it's not captured by some of the economic surveys, but you certainly see this with the birth rate falling off mm -hmm. for millennials, and you certainly see this uh, with you know the fact that we aren't seeing wages increase more. So how do you reconcile that? Well, I, th I think that's true. I mean, the gap between rich and poor is growing, uh, and I think it'll continue to grow. Uh, and, and a lot of people are getting left behind. But again, we're we're talking about you know how do you how do you invest? And and you know in the in the first quarter, operating earnings were up 26 percent. In May, wages were up 2.8 percent. That's not good for workers, but it's great for shareholders. So it's, uh, I, th I think you have to recognize the economy that, w that we actually have here, which is pretty good for corporations. One other thing that you said in the panel that I thought was really interesting uh, was about how people in Sweden manage to equalize the amount of espresso they drink with the amount of vodka they drink in yeah. the evenings. Uh, and you were sort of making the analogy that we've got this incredible tax plan that's boosting earnings and a, and a really solid corporate backdrop, but we also have all the uncertainty from trade talk. Can you just explain sort of how well, you Well, yeah, I mean, I, this, 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 this was mainly a, a slur some colleagues of mine from Sweden, not not the entire Swedish nation. I'm sure I, they I, appreciate it. But, but <laughs> uh, no, I, I think I think we have a sort of a mixture of vodka and espresso in the economy right now. Uh, we've got you know espresso is clearly a stimulative, and we've got all the stimulus from fiscal stimulus, which is very unusual this late in the cycle. But we've got this big tax cut, a lot of money in people's pockets, a lot of money in corporate pockets. That's helping.
helping the economy grow. And if it was just for that, the economy would probably be overheating. We'd be really worried about inflation. But at the same time, we've got the, 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 the sedative, or, or the vodka, if you like, of um, tariff worries, Washington worries, political divide. Um, and all of that is creating uncertainty. The problem with uncertainty is the businesses, what, you know, when you've got uncertainty, what, what's, what do people say? Well, let's wait and see. The problems of three most dangerous words in economics are wait and see. If everybody decides to wait and see, what they, what they see is not good. And so we've actually got this drag from uncertainty, which, uh, particularly around trade policy, which is negating some of the stimulus from the fiscal, uh, from the fiscal package. Well, you know, caffeine and alcohol, they're two things that can lead to addiction, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, if you have a lot of caffeine, you need more and well, you need to keep it consistent. Well, that's right. I mean, it, that's right. And they both have they both have bad long term. And that really gets back yeah, to my right. sort of near term. People should be more bullish long term. They should maybe be more bearish because on, on the fiscal side, we're going to have, you know, starting in October, we're going to have federal deficits of over a trillion dollars for as far as the eye can see. That is going to impoverish us in the long run. Um, and equally with trade, you know, you want trade negotiations uh, to result in trade agreements quickly. Because uncertainty about trade just means that I don't know as a corporation, should I, should I build a plant in Prioria? Should I build a plant in Poland? I don't know. And if I don't know, I'm not going to do either. And so I, I, so I think uh, both, both extra uncertainty from Washington and unwarranted bud- budget deficits, are, those are both negatives in the long run. Do investors make investing too complicated for themselves? Absolutely, they do. I think I think uh, I think people need to think about you know, for example, emerging markets. I think emerging markets is a great is a is people should have in a portfolio right now. But people think, oh, it's too complicated. I have to know about all these things. No, you don't. I mean, you, you don't. You need to buy, uh, have a good manager and let them invest in the forest. I'm not going. I'm not going to to testify on behalf of any individual tree in emerging markets, but the forest will grow. Emerging markets will grow faster than the rest of the developed markets for years to come. A long-term investor should have a position in emerging markets and just feel comfortable about that rather than trying to nitpick each individual country. You also said that you thought that the most overvalued asset right now is Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, the problem about Bitcoin is, I mean, I know, I know a lot of people unfortunately do this, but uh, want to invest in Bitcoin. The problem with Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency is there's no real barrier to entry. Now, I think blockchain technology is obviously a good technology. It's obviously going to be useful in a lot of ways. But right now, it's, it's, you know, Bitcoin is, is like the leader, but it's got nothing that's going to maintain its lead. It's got no barrier to entry. It's like you build a new Olympics, uh, Olympic stadium and, and you've got this weekend jogger running around, uh, running around the path and they look really good in the stadium. The problem is the varsity team's on a bus headed for the stadium. And when they get there, the, you know, the, the, the weekend jogger's not going to look so good. I think with, with the problem with something, a cryptocurrency, is it's not a store of value, it's not a unit of account, it's not a medium of exchange. In the long run, I think blockchain dollars, blockchain yen, blockchain euros will be a much better bet. Thank you very much for being with us. Dr. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist, Head of Global Market Insights Strategy Team at JP Morgan Asset Management. I am very pleased to bring in Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated, joining us here in Orlando, Florida. Do you feel a particular affinity to the city? I do. Orlando is in Orlando. Yeah, do you feel like the city birthed you? (laughs) You don't have to answer that question. It it creates a (laughs) lot of confusion with TSA and hotel check-in clerks and all sorts of things. So I want to start with a question, a kind of existential question that's been plaguing the market, which is, is this as good as it gets with earnings? 
Uh, first of all, I want to say you did a superb job moderating the panel this morning Thank with, with Reinhardt and, and David Kelly. That's very kind. Uh, it, really good job. And, and this was a topic that you touched on uh, w- with your panelists this morning. Uh, you talk about is your question is this as good as it gets? I, I would actually take the other side of the argument that I don't think the market believes a lot of what they see. We think that the stronger economic growth, stronger earnings growth, all of that, in fact, is sustainable. And the market's not as as ebullient as it should be because they don't think that any of this is going to last and that it's all ephemeral and it's just going to disappear. Um, so I, I, you know, our view, we've got a thirty one hundred forecast for the S&P 500 by the end of this year. We think there's going to be a strong fourth quarter rally once we get through the summer period where there's going to be a lot of concern about the midterm elections and uh, what's the Fed doing? Are they eventually going to overshoot? What's their policy going to be? Uh, This pop in first quarter earnings, is that sustainable? This pop that we think we're going to see in second quarter GDP, is that sustainable? Everyone's assuming that that all of this is just a flash in the pan. It ends badly. we think that, that, that we're putting in place a foundation that's going to get us back to trend line or better economic growth. We're looking at, at corporate earnings growth that hasn't been this good in seven or eight years. And, and the market needs to be more excited about this, and I think eventually they will. Today's not that day. So you think we're going to get another 600 points on the, uh, uh, on the S&P 500? So we're sitting at about the— 2,700. Uh, yeah. Okay, I, 500 absolutely. points. So, so we, and we think the, the back of that is going to be a very strong fourth quarter rally. That, that when you study the history, the, the, this year, calendar 2018, there's a very unusual confluence of three seasonal events. The, the sell in May and go away thing happens every year. We know about that. Um, but this is also the second year of the four-year presidential election cycle. Tends to be very volatile for stocks. And we've had a leadership transition at the Federal Reserve. Now, the Fed's been around 100 years. There's only been 16 chairmen. But the market has a very distinct trading pattern whenever we change horses. And, and when, when these three things come together, they've only come together six times in the last 85 years or so. And, and the previous five times, you've had this sort of barbell-shaped year where we started the year in good shape. There was a lot of volatility and instability in the middle of the year. And then we ended the year in, in really great shape. I think we're going through that, that instability period right now in terms of What's going to happen with the midterm elections? What's going to happen with the Fed? We've got another FOMC meeting coming up next week. Right. All right. We think there's going to be a quarter point hike. I think that's a fairly consensus view. But the question from then is, what do the dots look like? What's the Fed's policy prescription going to be over the course of the next 18 months or so? Will they overtight? Right. We don't know the answers to that. Well, with just about a, a minute to go here, I'm wondering what your perspective is, given the fact that you expect a strong fourth quarter rally. Does the Fed matter? for that, considering the fact that people are pricing it or are talking about certainly four rate hikes this year? Well, it absolutely matters because our forecast is only three rate hikes. Okay. Uh, so so if we're wrong and, and the Fed's going to give us four or more, um, you know, there's been a rumor that, uh, uh, you know, Jay Powell, one of the things he's thinking about is, is sort of scrapping Janet Yellen's idea of only four press conferences, going to eight press conferences. And uh, the reason why that's significant is that the market has gotten into their head that only a press conference, only a presser, only a meeting with the presser is a live meeting, and that we're not going to do anything in the other meeting. Now, that's not necessarily right, but Powell wants to strip that 
thought process away from the market and say, okay, every time we meet, every six weeks for an FOMC meeting, we might do something. And, and uh, the reason that Yellen apparently didn't want to do pressers every time is that it's a lot of work to prepare for them. Yeah. <laughs> we are broadcasting from BNY Mellon Inside 2018 in Orlando. And joining us, of course, is Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated. Uh, Phil, uh, let's talk about small and mid-cap stocks for sure. just a second. I was looking at the Russell 2000, up 8.5% so far this year. Uh, is it because they are more domestically focused, or is it because they just didn't get any love previously? Uh, combination of the two. This has been one of our biggest calls. Uh, we went to a, a table-pounding, burn-yourself-at-the-stake buy on small caps last fall, and there were probably a half a dozen key reasons. At the top of the list was the fact that the U.S. economy, corporate earnings, economic growth, was starting to really perk up. And a small cap company typically does 80% or so of their business here. So theoretically, that was going to benefit them. Uh, if we were right that the economy and the corporate earnings were going to get stronger, that meant that the Fed was probably going to accelerate its tightening policy. That's happened. Uh, which meant that the dollar was going to finally catch a bit. Now, remember, dollar-euro had gone from... 103 to 125 or so over the course of last year. We thought that was overdone and that we should have seen a rally back to about the 115 level or so. So we're sitting at about 117, 118 or so right now. The strength in the dollar should benefit small cap companies just as the weaker dollar tends to benefit large cap companies. It makes their goods and services cheaper as they're exporting them overseas. Half or more of a large cap company's stuff is done overseas. So the stronger dollar, based upon those other things, was yeah. going to benefit small caps. So I'm just wondering, before we move on to some of the other sectors, I'm just wondering, a lot of people think that the dollar is going to weaken again, uh, probably in six months, maybe a year, as people start to realize how deep the deficits really are. Do you agree, and when would you consider start ta start, starting to take some risk out of small caps? So I, I'm not sure that I fully agree with that assessment. I, I am concerned about the debt and the deficit levels, no question. Uh, but Dan Clifton uh, over at Strategas put out a note uh, a week or so ago saying that when we start to get some of the data out of the government this year in terms of how much the federal tax revenue has increased because economic growth is better, capital gains taxes are better, et cetera, and, and how much some of that has been applied to the debt and the deficit, the numbers, he said, will look better. We as an investment community don't really have an appreciation of that because right now we're just speculating. So you think that uh, that small caps have, have a pretty long run ahead of them, it sounds like. Absolutely. What about tech stocks? Because they have been reaching record sure. highs, and I'm just wondering how you're thinking about that. So we, we love tech uh, through last year into the first quarter of this year and then sort of went neutral, I, I guess, as the market was sort of peaking in that late January, early February standpoint. The, the reason for that, valuation appeared to us to be a little ahead of itself, and large cap growth generally had outperformed large cap value by about 25 percentage points over the course of 17 in the first part of 18. Now, that's a one-standard deviation event that has only occurred five times in the last 40 years or so. So it appeared to us that growth was ahead of itself. Now, in those other four instances, when that inflection point came and money started to rotate back into value, value had a phenomenal run. 
and and so we think we're at one of those inflection points now and so we, we've been overweight energy stocks financial service stocks and industrial stocks uh, in the domestic market as a result of that I'm gonna throw you a little bit of a curveball here because uh we're talking about all of this in the context of this conference and people planning for their financial future right. and trying to, uh, in some way, not just simplify it, but make it applicable to their personal situation. Social Security right. is a big part of people's retirement plan. Whether you have a lot of money or a little money, you kind of, in your mind, have this notion you're going to get your Social Security check. Right. This is the first time since 1982 that the government's having to dip into the trust fund in order to fund Social Security payments. Right. What do you say to people who are using Social Security as the first piece of the bigger puzzle of a retirement plan? Well, if it's the only piece, um, I, I would be a little nervous. I think it's part of a mosaic that you've got your, your 401k, uh, you've got your IRA, you've got your Social Security, you've, you've got some, some, some savings, you've got the equity in your house. All of that together, people should be fine. If, if you've done nothing other than continue to hope and pray and light candles that the government will continue to you know, be able to support you with your Social Security checks, I think that's a risky strategy. Because we've got to address, in my opinion, the unsustainable trajectory of entitlements at some point in the future. I don't know that today is that day because I don't think we have the right mix of government officials with the backbone and the vision to be able to fix the problem. Yeah. But but this problem is getting progressively worse every day. Uh, and, and if I were sitting in the White House right now, I'd be trying to put together a plan that, that uh, brings the best thinking of both sides to compromise on the issue, that, that we've got to do some things to recognize uh, better health, uh, longer uh, uh, retirement ages, uh, means testing of benefits for the super wealthy, increasing the tax base. There's a bunch of different things that we need to do in order to get Social Security on a more sustainable footing. Thank you so much for being with us, Phil Orlando. Always wonderful to get your insights, especially in the town that was named after you. Phil Orlando, <laughs> Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated, ruling over his roost here at the 2018 Insight Conference in Orlando. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. This was a, this was a thrill to be with you guys. Our next guest spent more than two decades at the Federal Reserve in a variety of capacities. He now serves as the chief economist at Standish, which is part of BNY Mellon Asset Management. I want to bring in Vincent Reinhardt. Thank you so much for joining us. Really a pleasure having you. Uh, thanks for having me. I want to start with a lot of some of the hand-wringing in the economics profession right now. Is the Phillips curve dead? Uh, can we throw away the yield curve as it flattens and disregard it, even though in the past it's been a telling indicator of recessions? What do you think the biggest thing is right now that the economics profession or economists are getting wrong? Uh First thing to remember is all that hand-wringing notwithstanding, at the end you have to go back to certain mechanisms because that's what keeps your understanding of the uh, other world uh, in motion. Uh, to me, I think the biggest thing the uh, brethren get wrong is that the rest of the world is bigger and it doesn't act exactly like us. 
uh, that a lot of macroeconomists are used to a closed form representation of the U.S. economy and much more comfortable with that. But the plain fact is uh, we went from something like um, emerging markets being a third of the uh, uh, Federal Reserve's exchange rate index to be more like 70% of the uh, of, of the Federal Reserve's exchange rate index. So what's the practical implication of that? I mean, how does that factor into sort of the everyday existence of Americans? So it's a couple things. One is it's probably why there's so, uh, so much pressure keeping inflation from going up, even though there's evident resource pressure, because the rest of the world is there to meet some of our demand, uh, because the rest of the world also doesn't act like us. Uh, emerging markets in particular try to limit their fluctuations of their exchange rate vis-a-vis -vis the dollar. That implies that major currencies aren't as important as they used to be. Have we become more isolated in our thinking? I think we didn't change and therefore are relatively more isolated than we should, should have. I.e., if you missed the fact that uh, China is the largest economy in terms of international purchasing power, you're, you're, you're gonna you're, you're gonna be missing out on, on 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 the explanation. Great example. We know from the minutes that back in January the FOMC had a long discussion about inflation determination. They put a page and a half in the FOMC minutes. I used to sign those for six or seven years. That's a lot. That's a big footprint. Over this page and a half, you will find nowhere global supply chain, rest of the world, exchange value the. It was all domestic-centric. So, uh, you know, we spoke about this earlier, but Scott Minard of Guggenheim came out and today said that the flattening yield curve, now at the flattest or about uh, since 2007, is an indicator that we're getting closer to the end of this cycle, that we're probably within two years of a recession. Do you agree? So I can say the easy thing, and that is the U.S. economy is dynamic. In the post-war period, about 15% of the years had recessions in them. So if you're asking me for a multi-year forecast, there's got to be a probability of recession in there. Now, does the yield, is the yield curve as scary as it used to be? Yeah. And I think the answer is no. And, and the reason is the used, yield curve used to be very scary because if short rates were below long rates, it meant that long rates incorporated the expectation of the Fed easing. If short rates were real high, it meant the Fed had a tight policy. Yeah. So what gets the Fed from tight to easy? A recession. And so therefore it was good at predicting a recession. What's the difference now? And that is long rates always incorporate a term premium, the scarcity you know, uh, uh, value associated with holding treasury securities. Well, treasuries are really, really scarce because the Federal Reserve and foreign official accounts hold them. In that environment, estimates of the term premium are actually negative. So it's not as big a signal about a future Fed mistake when long rates are low relative to short rates. You've heard the phrase that generals fight the last war. Have economists and politicians, are they fighting the last war, particularly on trade, rather than figuring out how to live in a world where China is, as you described, this dominant power? Hmm. We seem to be fighting skirmishes at the edges to try to satisfy some nostalgic version of what we think the world ought to look like. I think a good way to frame it is we're still thinking about the accomplishment of bringing China into the global trading order with their accession to the World Trade Organization. And we're all backslapping saying, that's a real accomplishment. 
what we aren't thinking about was exactly who we brought into that world trading organization, that global system. It's somebody, it's a country that has a much more longer term focus than us, that has a desire to um, uh, get market share and get the technology that we've gotten. It's not the same kind of trading partner that, that, that you write down in most economic models. You know, we also, we hit on um, emerging markets earlier and, and Turkey's central bank earlier today surprised the market by raising interest rates, the, the main interest rate to nearly 18%. They just had uh, a near record amount of inflation over the past year. How are you thinking about emerging markets right now? Oh, and by the way, the. Argentine central bank went up to 40%. Right. And, and those two examples are just great to teach in a classroom on financial crises because it, tell it tells you about the impossibility of an interest rate defense. You're trying to hold your exchange rate and you're going to do it by raise, raising your domestic rate. Well, the problem is that's not real credible because the more and more you jack up your, your policy rate to lessen the pressures on the exchange rate, the more likely you're killing your own economy. The more likely you're going to get replaced. The more likely it's not going to be sustained. So in fact, the need to do something that dramatic is read by investors as saying, there's something dramatic underneath. Well, and certainly there is, but I'm just wondering, you know, given the fact that we're seeing Argentina, Turkey, Brazil kind of suffering with their uh, currency falling out of bed a bit. You know, is this sort of indicating a bigger issue at this point? Uh, so Brazil's a good example where it, it wasn't an interest rate defense. They didn't lower rates when they had the opportunity. And, and an opportunity they took that Argentina didn't take was they built up more reserves. So they're a little distinct, but guess what? They've got political risk too. They're also going to be a source of uncertainty. The scary thing about this is it wasn't much of a backup in interest rates that exposed the pressure in on- US In, in U.S. interest yes. rates. That exposed pressure on EM. And who did markets focus on? It focused on the economies that had ongoing budget deficits and current account deficits. Market participants are not your friend when they're worried about funding your ongoing obligations. And that's something officials forgot over the prior couple of years uh, when it was so easy to sell long-term securities. 10 seconds, what is Vincent Reinhardt reading at the beach this summer? Uh, reading at the beach, I'm catching up on a bunch of old uh, uh, Mark Twain uh, books. Thanks very much for being with us. No, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Vincent Reinhardt is the uh, chief economist of, well, he's got a quadruple mandate, Standish, Mellon Capital, the Boston Company Asset Management, and BNY Mellon Asset Management North America. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.